Hello and welcome. Hello. You're listening to Education Policy for All podcast. We're your hosts, Lindsay Nigren and Dustin Hosseini. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our next episode of Education Policy for All. We're joined with Ed Vickers from the University of Kyushu, or Kyushu University in Japan. He's a professor of comparative education, and he gave a seminar talk at the University of Glasgow uh, at the end of February on one country, one system, one culture, the educational implications of Hong Kong's new national security law. And so I wonder if you might be able to tell us a little bit of what this seminar was about. Uh, sure, yes. So, um uh, if you've been reading the newspapers or watching TV over the last couple of years and have come across any stories to do with Hong Kong, you may have heard of the national security law, um, which has really transformed Hong Kong's political landscape since June 2020 when it was introduced. Um, uh, and this basically has meant um, uh, censorship of the media or intensified censorship of all sorts of media, um, uh, restrictions on political activity uh, of various kinds, but it's also had quite serious implications for the education system, uh, for what teachers are expected and not expected to teach or to say in school uh, what goes into textbooks um, what goes into examinations all sorts of aspects of the education system so my seminar was focusing on that and looking particularly at the uh, what had happened to education policy since the introduction of this law as well as looking at the the the, the background to the law's introduction and so forth Okay. And just out of curiosity, how does this relate to educators? Why is it important for them to kind of understand this or know about this? I think it's important uh, for anyone who has any dealings whatsoever with Hong Kong, whether in the educational sphere or otherwise, uh, to understand you know, what has changed uh, across Hong Kong society in the last two years. Um, I think for educators, what it means for educators may depend partly on where they are. <laughs> um, obviously it means a lot for educators in Hong Kong, um, <clears throat> perhaps rather less directly for educators in, uh, Scotland or Europe. Um, but I think, um, it's, ramifications extend certainly beyond Hong Kong to China as a whole. I mean, what has been happening in Hong Kong in the education system and in society and in politics more broadly reflects some very major changes um, that have been happening in China as a whole uh, over the last five to ten years. So this national security law didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, it is one facet of uh, a sort of increasingly repressive uh, political climate across China, uh, from the far west in Xinjiang to the southeast where Hong Kong sits as a little pimple on China's chin. 
I mean, in the seminar and, you know, when I speak or write about <laughs> this sort of issue, uh, yes, I'm addressing educators and I think educators should care about this. Uh, if there's an international brotherhood of educators, they should care about the fact that teachers in Hong Kong are being um, thrown into prison uh, for saying the wrong thing in the classroom, for example, for allowing their students to discuss the uh, the merits of arguments for or against Hong Kong's independence. That'll get you thrown into prison now in Hong Kong. You know, out of sympathy and fellow feeling, I hope that educators would care about that wherever they happen to be. Um, but I think it's it's important for all of us to understand, you know, what's going on in China and uh, in Hong Kong, uh, you know, as, as part of that. Okay. Can you just briefly summarize your se- your seminar? Because you you started to touch on it a little bit, but just to give the audience a bit of background, what what was that seminar about? Well, as I said, it was about the, the implications of Hong Kong's national security law for education. And, you know, those implications cover some of the things uh, I've just touched upon. So enhanced censorship of uh, teaching materials, intensified controls over what teachers can say in the classroom. It's also meant the banning of many civil society organizations in Hong Kong. And, And that includes, for example, the largest teaching union, the uh, Hong Kong Professional Teachers Union, that's gone. And that was was the most powerful union in Hong Kong. Um, that's disappeared. Um, you know, so the, the, the intimidation and the corrosion of any sort of independent civil society since the introduction of that law has... Um, removed really the sort of buffer between teachers, educators, and um, an increasingly repressive government. <laughs> um, so in my seminars, basically um, uh, laying this out and sharing some of the you know examples of what this has meant for various aspects of the Hong Kong education system. And I was focusing mainly on curriculum uh, and, and looking at different levels of the system. National security law has meant national security education. It is, and uh, students from kindergarten level to university now have to take courses in something called national security education. What the hell does that mean? Well, why do we need a national security law in the first place? And if we need it, why make so much fuss about it? Talking about national security so much and so loudly implies, of course, that national security is threatened. Who is, is that actually what it's called? It's, the, well, the law is called the national security law. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, so that now there's this exciting new subject called national security education. Well, it's not actually a distinct school subject. There are not examinations in national security education, but it's it's permeated through the school curriculum. And what are, what are kind of some examples, I guess? <sighs> well, in history, this involves learning about the threats to national security. 
So as I was saying, you know, if you make so much noise about national security, that implies that you think the nation's not very secure, or at least it's potentially insecure. Why would that be? Uh, well, because you know, out there in the big wide world, there are lots of nasty foreigners who, in the past, have have invaded China uh, and uh, and have lopped off bits of Chinese territory. And after all, that's why Hong Kong exists as a, a sort of distinct entity in the first place, because of British imperialism. So in a sense, or at least this is how the narrative would go, you know, Hong Kong itself is, is, is sort of living evidence of China's inherent insecurity. Uh, and so it's the responsibility of teachers or of educators at all levels to hammer that message into the heads of their charges to make sure that everybody understands this uh, and never forgets that foreigners potentially, you know, that they will take any chance to bully China and keep China down. So is this in a sense like a a rewriting of history or like an inoculation of the younger generation that like the history that they're now going to be taught is that foreigners are bad or that China is strong as a whole union type thing. Mm. Because this kind of reminds me of like what's happening in the States right now with our curriculum battles. And then I think more recently in the Philippines with what happened with their president at the time and, what was that? Oh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Yeah. And, and now, now in schools and the curriculum is being taught that that was actually such a peaceful time when they were in rule and it was such a prosperous time. And it's the people who remember the before times are not so convinced, but then the younger generation is already in, inoculated, indoctrinated into this belief and this curriculum because it's all mm. they've been taught. So... Mm. Yeah, I mean, what? Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting point. So, what's happened in America or in the Philippines in recent years is, you know, is quite disturbing. I mean, this, this phenomenon of of nationalist populism, and of course, it's not restricted to America and the Philippines. It's more widespread, um, and that's, but that's a, a rather different phenomenon from what we're looking at in Hong Kong or China. Because that is, a, to some extent at least, a symptom of balkanization of our public sphere. Uh, you know, the way that um, social media technology has, um, you know, left us all kind of quite isolated from each other and has undermined a sort of common understanding of the world. Uh, like an echo chamber. Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, there were three TV channels in Britain, you know, so, and uh, you may have your own views about how trustworthy the BBC is or ITN news, but we basically, you know, the, 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 the national conversation started from a, a reasonably sort of, you know, common basis. Uh, increasingly for, and, and, and particularly for young people nowadays, that's not, that's just not the case. 
Uh, and so what we see in America and the Philippines is, I think, very largely a product of that. Yeah, as you said, people staying within their comfort zones, their the echo chambers where they they hear the messages they want to hear. And, and of course, you know, power, imbalances of power play a huge role in, you know, what messages are broadcast loudest in societies like the Philippines and America. But what we're dealing with in China and now in Hong Kong is an environment where the state is, is, is very actively controlling that sphere uh, and limiting what messages are available to people. That's still not the case in Hong Kong as much as it is in mainland China. But, I mean, along with the undermining of civil society in Hong Kong has gone the closure of the of what remained of the independent media. So the mo- most popular newspaper, the Apple Daily, uh, was, was closed down, um, I think that was last year, might have been the year before, but that's gone. Uh, and actually the owner is, as we speak, in prison. Uh, another example of the, you know, the corrosion of an independent public sphere, uh, the most famous Catholic cleric in Hong Kong, Cardinal Zen, was arrested last week. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a pretty good indicator as well of, you know, the, the, uh, um, the intimidation of civil society that's, that's now going on there. But to bring, to come back to the point about rewriting history. So what I said about foreigners threatening Hong Kong and that being a sort of key theme of the, the narrative of national security education, it's not that that's untrue or at least if we're talking about the past, yeah? I mean, Hong Kong does exist because of the Opium War. (laughs) And um, uh, the Opium War is not exactly the proudest moment of Britain's national story. You know, there is is a lot to say about the record of foreign imperialism in China. The problem is that there are lots of other aspects of Chinese history uh, that that narrative ignores, such as the, the the horrendous famine of the Great Leap Forward in the 1950s, destruction that, that was wreaked across China by the civil war between the communists and the nationalists in the late 1940s, or the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 1970s. And those things are the reason why most people who live in Hong Kong today ended up in Hong Kong in the first place. They got there as refugees from China or their grandparents or great-grandparents did. And that is not discussed in the schooling system. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you could argue in a sense, and many Hong Kong people would, would see it this way, that the greatest threat to Hong Kong's security is the Chinese Communist Party. But arguing that within Hong Kong would get you thrown in jail or as a teacher if you say, okay, kids, Here's a question for you to think about, you know, the greatest threat to Hong Kong security is the Communist Party. Discuss. And then, you know, little uh, Wolap goes home to his mummy and daddy and says, you never believe what we talked about in class today. You know, daddy who happens to work for the, um, the government security bureau makes a call. And before you know it, little Wolap's class teacher 
is in a police cell and the school principal's undergoing intense questioning, national security, <clears throat> police. Okay. You, so just touching on this, one thing you mentioned in your seminar is, you know, identity. So uh, China wants um, Hong Kongers to share in this monolithic Han identity. Did mm. I get that right? Uh, yes. Yes. Tell us what that. Is. First of all, what are the Han people? Because some people will know uh, who they are. Some people mm. will not know. They will just see Chinese, right? Just like Russia, people will see Russia, Russians. There are no others. But we, yes. if you study these areas, like I've studied Russia extensively, there are more than just Russians. There are many other people. So, who are the Han? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a, it's a it's a rather similar situation. So, I mean. The Han are, I mean, as far as many people are concerned, the terms Han and Chinese are synonymous. And, and in fact, for most Chinese, that is also the case. Um, so China, the country, also contains, well, according to the, the government, 55 minority nationalities in addition to the Han. And these are groups like Tibetans or Uyghurs or Mongols. Uh, and Russians, in fact, yeah, there are a few Russians up in the northwest, Koreans. You know, so there are all these minority ethnic groups, but the Han account for over ninety percent, or around ninety percent, of the population of China as a whole. Han Chinese basically refers to uh, the Chinese who, or the people who were living in China as it was about 400 years ago, or until the mid-17th century. Uh, under the, the dominant group? Sorry? Who became the dominant group? Well, so the China we see on the map today is the successor state to, to the Qing Empire. And the Qing Empire was formed after a, a group from what's now the northeast of China, Manchuria, conquered uh, the Ming Empire, uh, that was the preceding dynasty. So they conquered that, and then they went on to conquer places like Tibet and what's now Xinjiang and um, Inner Mongolia. Well, the whole of Mongolia are uh, they incorporated within their empire? China today is sort of historical China plus these other bits, uh, and the Han Chinese are by and large, the population of the, the core of China. Uh, so the, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, originally they were the people who inhabited the, the Ming dynasty. I mean, I, I'm, I'm putting it very simply because there were uh, Chinese also living sort of around the edges in places that weren't controlled by the central Chinese government. But okay. You know, so these are the be so so. If you think about any stereotypes that you have of Chinese people or Chinese culture, they would apply to the hand. So Confucianism, Taoism, the language or the written language, Chinese characters. Uh, these, you know, part of the, the sort of cult common culture shared by the hand. So Tibetans don't use Chinese characters. Uyghurs don't use Chinese characters. Mongols don't. Yeah, but the Han have this common literary heritage, uh, you know, certain common values and customs, Chinese New Year, 
various and even the spoken language i guess but i guess where i'm going with this is so we have this national security law Mm. uh then we have the han identity so is that law trying to enforce that identity is that what one of the aims is uh not exactly. So, I mean, Hong Kong people have never had a problem with seeing themselves as Chinese culturally. And in fact, um, so I mentioned the Cultural Revolution when actually a lot of people ran away from mainland China to Hong Kong. I mean, if you go back 40 or 50 years, for many, perhaps most Hong, Hong Kong people, their identity, the source of you know pride was in being, if you like, more Chinese than the Chinese on the mainland. The the glories of Chinese civilization, the glories of our traditional culture, these are things that are better preserved in Hong Kong, or for that matter in Taiwan, than on the mainland, where you know Mao's Red Guards have been going, a lot, going around trashing temples and burning manuscripts and persecuting intellectuals. Yeah? Hong Kong is preserving those traditions, or, or this is how... It was seen Hong Kong was preserving those those traditions when the communists on the mainland were desecrating them. But the <laughs> Communist Party today is not Mao Zedong's Communist Party. Okay, so it's not a revolutionary. It's not. A, it's not. It doesn't embody a sort of revolutionary campaign. Uh, bring about the sort of radical socialist egalitarian transformation of society no uh, i mean china and, and this includes hong kong today is one of the most unequal uh, and in that sense unsocialist societies in the world um and so the 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 communist party ideologically has kind of turned 180 degrees and rather than attacking tradition in the name of socialism uh it's aligning itself with tradition uh, in order to uh, legitimate uh, its regime and uh, and also to to legitimate the existing sort of social order the 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 status quo and what that has meant actually is that you know although Hong Kong people would still identify with Chinese culture this idea that Hong Kong people derive pride from being more Chinese in a political sense than their compatriots on the mainland. This just doesn't have appeal anymore. Uh, I mean, in a sense, you could say the Communist Party within Hong Kong has kind of undermined the appeal of traditional culture or a, con- or, or a sort of politically conservative interpretation of traditional culture by adopting it themselves. Yeah, they've tainted it <laughs> by association with the Communist Party, and I think in the eyes of many young Hong Kongers. And is this what you call, just briefly, kind of a, a colonial or neo-colonial character of Chinese governance? Well, that's something slightly different. I mean, but that is related, I think, to the to to the the the, the changing approach of the communist party to that legacy of traditional culture uh i mean under mao or sort of in the radical socialist phase of the communist party the party preached although it did not practice equality 
not just between social classes, but also between ethnic groups. Now, as I said, you know, there's there's extreme inequality in China, both between social classes and amongst ethnic groups. And in order to legitimate that inequality, the party is appealing or, or, or it's trying to set up a very conservative interpretation of Han Chinese culture as the cultural standard or norm for all inhabitants of China. And so um, if we think about what's happening in Xinjiang, I mean, that's been in the news recently, re-education camps for Muslims in Xinjiang, what's happening there? They are basically being uh, uh, encouraged or cajoled (laughs) into abandoning Islam, into stopping from speaking their native language and instead uh, take uh, uh, adopting the norms of the, the the dominant ethnic group in China which is the Han uh, and in the case of Hong Kong you could say you know basically that you know, a similar thing is happening I mean now the government is I mean even the even though the the, the the Hong Kong people themselves identify as Han Chinese and several decades ago, you know, saw themselves as more Han and more genuinely Chinese than mainlanders. Now the Communist Party is is portraying the problem with Hong Kong as Hong Kong people misunderstanding their Chinese identity, not conforming to this traditional this traditional standard that the party is trying to promote. And you know, so in in a sense, there's a resemblance between the stance that the Communist Party is adopting in relation to minorities and in, in relation to Hong Kongers and an idea of a sort of colonialist or imperialist civilizing mission. Yeah. So the problem with these locals or with these natives is that they're not civilized enough because they don't conform sufficiently to the standard of advanced sophisticated civilization with which we, the regime, are associated. Lindsay, you had a question. Yeah, and I think we're coming to the end of our time, but uh, I just wanted to bring this back to like education and maybe how you would see this affecting kind of a few years down the line or maybe decades. Like, do you think that it will really reshape, you know, that education itself will really redefine Hong Kong and its relationship to China, to like in a global scale or anything in that? Yeah, well, well, I, I think it may do, although it kind of pains me to say it. Several things are happening in Hong Kong now. One is that already quite a lot of Hong Kongers who can leave and who can't stomach what's going on are leaving. And, you know, quite a few of them have gone to Britain, uh, but, you know, others are going elsewhere. And at the same time, you know, Hong Kong doesn't control its border with mainland China. And although COVID restrictions at the moment mean that there's not that much travel in and out of Hong Kong, I think over time what will happen is that, uh, and this has been happening indeed over the last 20 years, that, um, you know, fresh influx of mainlanders from across the border will come in and... um, uh, these are people for whom you know Hong Kong will have a different meaning. Um, who won't see you know Hong Kong's relationship with 
the mainland in the same way as Hong Kongers whose parents or grandparents fled there in the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution saw it. And they may not even be Cantonese speakers. Hong Kong's culture may change as its demography changes. But also, you know, for the sort of Hong Kong, how can I describe them? The bona fide Hong Kongers who remain or their children, um, the enhanced controls on the media, the much um, stricter controls on school curriculum, the um, atmosphere of fear or intimidation in which educators must now operate, I think uh, over time may mean that Hong Kong in, in, in most respects becomes much more like cities, other cities in China. And, you know, that may lead to a kind of enforced amnesia. I mean, it depends how far this process goes. Um, but, for example, most people under the age of 30 in China don't know anything about the student movement of 1989. They don't know about Tiananmen Square. Uh, young Hong Kongers do. <laughs> um, but in 30 years' time, Will, will Hong Kongers under the age of 30 know anything about the protests of 2019 to 2020? Or, or what will they know? Um, it's hard to say. But, you know, if if things continue in China in the way that they are today, or, or if China continues down the path on which it's currently uh, set, then... Hong Kong in 20 or 30 years' time will, I think, be a completely different place. Uh, yeah, I mean, and its identity will have been transformed. But Hong Kong culture as we know it, I think, nonetheless, won't <laughs> have died out. Um, but it'll be largely the property of a Hong Kong diaspora. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's been very interesting. All right. Well, this has been a very interesting and enlightening talk. So thank you for joining us today, Ed. And um, yes, we'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Cheers.